Well, good morning, Bridge Community Church. Uh, it's so great to see you guys here this morning. It's a beautiful day outside, uh, so it means so much to us that you chose to spend some of that beautiful day uh, in here with us uh, this morning. So thank you for, for the time that you're investing. Uh, it really does mean a lot to us. Before we get started, um, I just wanted to take a minute and acknowledge the worship team. Uh, wasn't that awesome this morning to see Lacey and Dalen and Tommy up there? I can say from experience, it takes courage as an adult to stand up here on the platform. Uh, but as, as teenagers, to be willing to just come up here and, and use the talents that God has given you. And for the adults on the team who are willing to just kind of accept them uh, and mentor them as they go, you, you guys are investing uh, in the future and, and you're building a, a heritage that uh, you probably don't even realize now how much of an effect this can have. So, so thank you uh, for participating in that. Um, we're going to get into the message this morning. Uh, as you may or may not know, I'm not Pastor Paul. Uh, <laughs> I'm Andy, one of the, the elders here um, at, at Bridge. Uh, and we're, but we're going to be continuing uh, the sermon series that we've been going through over the past several weeks called Rooted. Uh, and so this uh, series is, is so important because there's so much right now that's just swirling around, uh, grabbing uh, for our attention and trying to shape the way we think and the way we view things. Uh, that it's becoming increasingly important to build a solid foundation, a root structure in God's word to understand what he says about the way things are and the way things work so that as the storms of life come, we've got that solid, solid foundation kind of holding us in place and keeping us from falling over. You may have seen pictures at times of, you know, after a, a hurricane or something like that where trees get blown over and pulled out by their roots. But most of the time, when you've got these strong winds, the trees stay planted, not because of the branches and what they have above the ground that you can see, but because of the root structure that they have deep below the ground that we may not be able to see. Uh, So our goal is that each of us, whether we're pastors or elders or uh, partners or attenders, uh, to become the people that are described in Psalm chapter 1. So I'm going to bring that uh, slide up for a second. Uh, the beginning of Psalms opens this way. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. And then here's where it ties into rooted. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So it's that last verse that really describes what we are trying to become. We want to be like that solid tree planted near streams of water. So our roots, as they go deep into the ground, get life from that stream. And we're to the point where whatever we're going to do prospers. Our, you know, we, we yield fruit in its season. Our leaves do not wither. Everyone's on board with that part of it. Yes, sign me up for the part where everything I do prospers. But the part that holds us up sometimes is that middle section, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on that law day and night. Sometimes that part kind of drags us down and we don't want to put the time in to study God's word and, and to learn about what it says. And I think a lot of times it's because we have the wrong impression of what it looks like or what it feels like to study God's word. A lot of times the way we feel about it looks like the picture in this next slide that you'll see here. 
You know, this is kind of how we view, you know, the poor guy hunched over in a dark room by himself. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt and we'll say his eyes are closed because he's praying, he's not sleeping. Um, But still, he's pouring over a pile of dusty old books with the world's creepiest paperweight. Uh, I do not know... (laughs) I do not know why he has a skull on his desk, um, but I'm not judging. Uh, so, so a lot of times, you know, this is how we view studying God's Word. And we just don't want to put the time in because it seems like it's going to be so boring. But what I submit to you this morning is that studying God's Word, if we really do it the way it was intended, can feel more like the picture on this next slide. Yes. <laughs> So props to my daughter for uh, doing this graphical design here. This is, uh, if you're unfamiliar with the movie, this is from National Treasure. Uh, it's Nicolas Cage's body and my face. Uh, but uh, but I, I, I love the movie National Treasure, um, which is interesting because growing up, you know, I took history in school. We all had to learn it. Wasn't very exciting to me. Wasn't very interesting to me. But I, you know, I studied the lessons. I wrote down the dates, wrote down the names. But then I watched National Treasure, and this movie made American history seem so much more exciting, right? Here's Nicolas Cage going on these adventures. He's searching through these old ancient documents and finding clues, and each clue leads to another clue, leads to another clue, because what's he looking for? He's looking for a treasure. And so what I propose this morning is that studying the Bible, studying God's Word the way it was intended, is just like Nicolas Cage in that movie where we've got these old documents. You know, we've got God's Word that spans thousands of years. And what we're going to be doing this morning is going through it, looking for the clues to get us to the treasure that's waiting for us. And we don't need Nicolas Cage to guide us through the process. I call it Bible study uncaged. Oh, <laughs> that was a little dad joke there. <laughs> All right, so um, what we're going to be doing is <laughs> taking a look at the, the book of Romans. Uh, we've been doing this the past several weeks in the Rooted series. And so just to kind of give you background in case you missed a couple of, of sermons, a uh, quick plug, if you did miss one, you can always go back either on uh, bridgecomchurch.org or Facebook or, or YouTube and, and rewatch some of the old sermons to get caught up. But here's a quick synopsis of, of where we left off. So the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. Uh, he had not visited them yet, but this was kind of his letter that he was sending ahead to kind of prepare them. Uh, and, and kind of establish this is the foundational beliefs that we have uh, in the gospel. Now, the church in Rome was made up of two different groups of people. There were the Jews, uh, so the, the nation of Israel, the people that had descended from that line, and the Gentiles, the people that were not part of uh, the Jewish nation. And for centuries, the Jews had grown up and been taught to view the Gentiles as unclean, and unholy, kind of set apart from their nation. And then what was so revolutionary about the gospel was that Jesus came and his message of salvation applied to everyone, to Jews and to Gentiles. And so here we are, we've got a Roman church, you know, in the, bit of, in the middle of one of the, the, the biggest cities of that time. We've got Jews, we've got Gentiles. They both believe the gospel. They both believe that it applies to both groups, but they're still kind of struggling to understand how that plays out and what that looks like to have these two separate groups with such different backgrounds all sharing this common faith. 
So Paul begins to step through the gospel, making the case for it being the power of God to both the Jew and the Gentile. And he begins to explain why it is we need the gospel in the first place, why it is we need to be saved from sin. And to prove that, he has to show that we have all sinned. So he starts off by listing uh, all different sins that the world has kind of devolved into. And it talks about God's... uh, wrath and it's this slow building anger as he allows people to make their own decisions even though it's you know they're falling into these sinful patterns uh, and just kind of seem to be getting worse and worse and worse and at that point you've probably got the jews hearing this letter read kind of pointing and nudging at the gentiles saying you know he's talking about you right you guys were horrible before you came to this church Uh, and then he transitions to chapter two And he starts to talk through uh, how God's judgment is just and how it applies to everyone. And just being Jewish in your physical body isn't enough to actually make you a child of God, to actually make you a true Jewish person. And he starts to teach against hypocrisy and saying, you know, this does not make you better than someone else. This does not automatically put you in right standing just because of your lineage. And then at that point, obviously the Gentiles are nudging back and pointing back at the Jews, saying, hey, he's talking to you too, right? So so we get to the end of chapter 2, and both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, are starting to squirm a little, getting a little bit uncomfortable because they know this message is aimed at both of them. And so when we pick up uh, in the beginning of chapter 3, this morning we're going to be reading from um, verses 1 through 8 of Romans chapter 3, Paul begins to write out uh, an argument between himself and the Romans before he gets there. So he's kind of pre-playing how this argument is going to go by himself in his own head. I don't know if you guys have done that before. I know I've been there where you're getting yourself so psyched out because you know you got to have this hard conversation that you don't want to have, and you start playing back, well, then they're going to say this, and then what am I going to say? And then, and, you know, so that's kind of what, what Paul's doing here. He's kind of pre-writing what the argument is going to be, what the back and forth is going to be between the Romans and himself. Maybe he's sitting there talking to the skull and, you know, going back and forth. I don't know. Uh, but he, he picks up in chapter 3, and, and I'm assuming this first passage, the first group to speak, would be the Jewish people. So uh, they lead off after just hearing Paul end uh, Romans chapter 2 by saying that, you know, being a Jew physically is not enough. Uh, It's really, you know, the circumcision of the heart that makes you a true Jew or a true child of God. And their response is, well, then what advantage is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Basically, if I spent my whole life following all of these rules and learning all this scripture, what was the point of that? if I'm going to be judged just like these heathens over here. And his response is, you know, the the what advantage is, it's much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So that is a huge advantage to have been raised in a family where generation by generation you have been taught the words of God. And even though that in and of itself does not save you, it gives you at least a leg up a foundation that your life has already started to be built on. 
The same can be said today for families who have grown up in the church. Uh, I know I, I fall into that category. My parents uh, raised me following Christ. Their parents raised them. So I've got this lineage of Christianity, much like the Jews uh, had a lineage of, of, their, um, of, of their heritage and their religious up, upbringing as well. So that's a huge advantage, but that in and of itself does not save you from judgment. It's not, that's not what saves you. Uh, so that's his, his first response to what he thinks the resistance is going to be that he's going to get from the Jews. Then we hear the Gentiles speak up, and they're kind of finger-pointing at the, at the Jews again. And they say, well, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? So what they're doing here is really getting to the heart of the hypocrisy that Paul talked about in the last chapter. Basically, why should I believe that God is faithful if the people that were supposedly his chosen people showed time after time again how unfaithful they were? If you read through the Old Testament, you can see story after story, especially as you go through the kings. This king was a good king. Everybody followed God. Next king was a bad king. Everybody went, went their own way. Next king was a good king. So basically what the Gentiles are, are challenging here is how do I really know that God is faithful if the people that he chose couldn't have been faithful? And so um, Paul's response there is, you know, when they ask, well, will their unfaithfulness cancel out God's faithfulness? He says, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so this is important, he goes back to scripture, right? As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So he uses scripture to kind of pre-fight the arguments that he's expecting to get from the Roman church. Uh, But it doesn't stop there. If we move on to the next slide, we pick up in verse 5 of Romans chapter 3. So here, you know, like I mentioned earlier, they're they're kind of squirming. They're getting uncomfortable. They've they've made their initial cases. Now they're kind of challenging the, the scripture that Paul just quoted to them. And they're looking for a loophole, a way to get out of this. And they say, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And Paul reminds us, I'm using a human argument here. And he responds back, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. So what's happening there? Basically, the argument they're making is the that's not fair argument. And they're saying, if my unfaithfulness and my untruthfulness makes God look better, because look, he's a truthful, faithful God, even when people aren't, why am I being punished for that? Shouldn't I be celebrated? Because the bad things that I'm doing are making him look that much better. And Paul, you know, obviously thinks this is ridiculous, uh, but this was a, an argument that was actually being made, and Paul was being accused of having said that because they were kind of twisting his words. That's why it says in here, um, you know, as, as we are uh, slanderously claiming, claiming to have said. But his bottom line is very simple uh, for the people that are taking that type of approach. He says their condemnation is just. So, you know, whatever punishment they get, for having a mindset like that is totally fair. 
So what I want to do this morning is kind of break that apart and build on the national treasure analogy that I was using to look for the clues in this scripture to find the treasure for what it is that we can take out of this section of scripture this morning. Um, so if we go to, this, to the, the next slide, here we are in the year 2020. Some of us may be reading scripture using an iPhone or a, you know, some sort of smartphone, reading an app. Uh, if you're following along, if you're reading the Bible in a smartphone this morning, can you just raise that up for me? Awesome. Thank you. So keep pushing us forward, you know, pushing that technology. What about uh, those of you who are following along in a paper, paper Bible, paper and ink? We got, all right, old schoolers, rock on. <laughs> They're keeping us grounded. So whether, you, whether you're reading paper or an app, we are, in either case, sitting here in 2020, reading passage of scripture that was written almost 2,000 years ago. We believe the book of Romans was written in the mid-50s AD, not 1950s, actual 50s AD. (laughs) Um, But in that scripture, so if, you, if you're following along in the app, they're like, like a U version or something like that, there's probably a little icon that looks like a word bubble with a dot, dot, dot. If you tap on that, that's going to tell you the location of the scripture that Paul was quoting. If you're using a paper Bible, there's probably a footnote, a little letter that points you down to the thing there. Don't worry, I'm not expecting you to be able to read the fine print. This is just a <laughs> an example. Um, the, the point is, whatever you've got in front of you, it's pointing you to, Paul was quoting uh, Psalm 51, verse 4. So there in our national treasure analogy is our first clue. It was either the little word bubble or the footnote. But what Paul is doing here when he's quoting scripture is he is referring us back to the book of Psalms, which would have been part of the scripture that he had available to him in his day. So if we go to the, the next page, uh, here I took a quick snapshot of, of my Bible and, and the book of Psalms. I uh, made it look yellowish to kind of give it that ancient feel. <laughs> um, and again, not expecting you to be able to, to read that, that fine print, but what I'm showing you is this points to uh, Scripture. So you can find Psalm 51, verse 4, and you can see word for word Paul was quoting Scripture that he had available to him in that day. Now the book of Psalms uh, is a, qu- a collection of poetry and songs written over the period of a thousand years. Um, you know, multiple of- authors, obviously, but a collection of psalms written over this long period of time. So if you have ever started to do something and realize it's taking you longer and longer than you ever expected, take some comfort in this. A thousand years <laughs> to write it. Um, so, so we've got this giant book of psalms, uh, but there's another clue in here, if you're reading in your Bible, at the tops of the section where it highlights that this is the start of Psalm 51, there's going to be a little section that gives you some background for when and how that book was written, or sorry, that chapter was written. And what it says is Psalm 51 is a Psalm of David, and he wrote this when Nathan confronted him uh, about the affair that he had had with Bathsheba. So now within this long time span of the book of Psalms being written, we've honed in on what specific time period we're talking about in this particular psalm. Um, From what I read, it looks like it was about a thousand years before Christ. Uh, In the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 12, we find the story of Nathan confronting David. So, you know, all the way to Romans, when, when Paul is talking about our response to God's judgment, 
What he's pointing us back to in the book of Psalms and in the book of 2 Samuel is an example of someone who had to respond to God's judgment. In this particular case, it was King David and how he has to respond when the prophet Nathan confronts him. So if you go to the next slide, this is a picture of what that may have looked like. Um, painting of someone who, you know, someone's imagination of what what it might be. Obviously, we didn't uh, paint this at the time, but uh, this is a picture of Nathan confronting King David about what he did. Uh, Now, you know, if we continue with our movie analogy here, uh, if you're not careful with the story of David and Bathsheba, Bathsheba, this can quickly slip beyond the PG ratings. So let me try and summarize this for you. Uh, Go through it briefly. We won't read the whole scripture uh, this morning, but you know, Second Samuel 12, if you want to go back and, and read it on your own, uh, certainly that's always encouraged. Uh, but here's what's happening. King David is the king of Israel. His soldiers are at war, but he is not at war leading his army. He's at home in his palace, up on his balcony, looking out over the kingdom that's all under him as king. And he sees this woman Bathsheba uh, bathing, and he's very attracted to her. So he brings her into his palace. They wind up having an affair, and she winds up getting pregnant from that. So David obviously is, you know, very concerned with how this is going to look, uh, that, that he has just done this. And so he tries to cover it up by bringing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, back home from the battle in hopes that he will go back to his house, he will sleep with his wife, and then if anyone questions how it is that Bathsheba is pregnant, they'll assume, oh, it was when Uriah was back home from battle. But he will not go to his house. He says if his fellow soldiers are sleeping out in the fields and they don't have the luxuries of home, he's not going to have them either, so he winds up sleeping outside. So that plan to cover it up doesn't work. His next plan is to send a message to his uh, generals and, and the leaders of his army to put Uriah in the front lines of the battle. So they put him in the front lines of the battle. He winds up getting killed. Now Bathsheba is a widow. He takes her under his wing, gets married to her. And so now, you know, on the surface, things look legit, right? Here is the king's wife. She's pregnant. It's David's child, but that's okay. David is is her husband. Uh, She is his wife. Granted, she's his seventh wife, but still, times were different then. Uh, (laughs) um, So he thinks, basically here, he has gotten away with murder. He has gotten everything set up to, on the surface, look like everything is fine. But then Nathan comes in, prompted by the Holy Spirit, and confronts David on the sin that he just committed. He uses a story that kind of paints a, a picture, an analogy of what it is David uh, has done. I encourage you to read it. It's really great how he, uh, he plays that off so that David doesn't even realize what's happening here. But when David hears the, the story, he's so enraged. And he says, whoever it is that did that in that story, they deserve judgment. They deserve to be punished. And here's where you see Nathan's finger pointing. He has to tell the king of Israel, David, that man was you. You're the one that has done that. You're the one that deserves punishment. So he's sitting there squirming and uncomfortable in the same position that we find the people reading the book of Romans after Paul lists out all the different sins that have been committed, whether they are you know, idolatry or hypocrisy or anything in the middle there. But David's response to that judgment 
is so different than the human arguments we see going back and forth in Romans chapter 3. David does not go and challenge Nathan like the arguments that we see in Romans where the the Romans would be challenging Paul's arguments. His response is straight to God. So let's look at this next slide. This has a couple of excerpts from Psalm 51. So we start with 51 verse 4. That's the verse that Paul quoted in Romans chapter 3. And this is uh, David. He wrote this, this psalm kind of reflecting on what was going on in his, in his own heart at this time. Speaking to God, he says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So you see, his response is to go straight to God, not to try and argue it, not to try and defend himself, but to admit openly, I have sinned against you and you have every right to judge me. But he does, doesn't end there. It's a beautiful psalm. Uh, I encourage you to read. I'm just, I just picked two verses from it to, to continue with. Uh, sorry, three verses, 10, 10 through 12. His response in this time is, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He understands the gravity of what he did. And his response is, again, not to fight it, but to ask for help. To ask God, cleanse me, create in me a clean heart, renew my spirit, because he does not want this to damage the relationship he already has with his heavenly father. That's why he says, don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He doesn't want the separation that sin sin brings. He wants to be able to restore that. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation, the joy that comes from knowing that we are in God's hands. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So you can see this is so contrary to the human arguments that we see in Romans chapter 3. It's humble, it's straight to God, and it's immediately looking to restore the relationship that is damaged by sin. So if we go to the next slide, we jump back to 2 Samuel 12, and we see what happens. So this is what we just read in the Psalms, is kind of what's going on inside of David. Outwardly, he responds back to Nathan, and he confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. So that's the good news of the gospel, right? We sin, we confess, God forgives us, and then we are not bound to die because of that sin. However, this next verse is a a sad one. Nathan continues, he says, But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Uh, that's, That's a real sad point here. But it's an important one. A lot of times, so God is willing to forgive us every time we sin. But a lot of times, we are still left to walk through the consequences of the decisions that we've made. God walks with us, but there are times where we still have to deal with bad choices we've made in the past lead to negative consequences And then we then have to live through those consequences. So we see that here with David. You know, he has the humble heart. He confesses. He repents. God forgives him. But he still has to deal with the consequences of his sin. So that's the bad news. But the good news is that God doesn't just leave it hanging there 
broken. Uh, if we, we're going to, I know I'm jumping all around scriptures today, so I apologize if you're getting dizzy. Um, but the next scripture that I want to show you is the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. So just a little bit of, of context. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, uh, and it starts with the genealogy of Jesus. So it goes from Abraham all the way down to Jesus, 28 generations of this guy was the father of that guy, was the father of this guy. Um, probably one of the driest parts of Scripture, maybe one of the most skipped over sections of the New Testament. No one really cares whose dad was who. Um, but there's another treasure hidden in here uh, that I, I want to point out to you. Because w- when I read this this week, the gravity of it just kind of wrecked me. Halfway through the genealogy of Jesus, so 28 generations, 14 generations down from Jesus to David, there's this statement. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So David had a son, King Solomon, that I'm sure you've heard of. King Solomon's mother was Bathsheba, who was the wife in the middle of this whole mess that he created. And that marriage between David and Bathsheba is part of the lineage of the Messiah, Jesus Christ came from the family line that went through David and Bathsheba. What that shows me is it does not matter how big of a mess you make. David, you know, David was guilty of lust, adultery, government conspiracy, murder, polygamy. You know, this was a Netflix series waiting to happen. He just made this huge mess, and it could have been his downfall. God forgives him and not only restores the relationship between God and David, but builds on this legacy, this foundation that he had been building since all the way back to Abraham. And from that mess, he redeems it and restores it to bring the birth of the Messiah that would save everyone you know, that salvation available to the Jews or the Gentiles, regardless of the mess and the imperfect people that trace down through that line from Abraham through David down to Jesus. So now that we have that context, that picture of the God that we serve and what he is able to do with the messes and the mistakes that we make, let's relook at some of the questions and some of the points that we see in Romans chapter 3. Um, what this tells me, the, the context of comparing the Roman response to David's response, first of all, is that God is faithful. He is faithful, and that is our foundation. That is our baseline truth, that no matter what, God is the one who is faithful. That is true regardless of my background, you know, the, the people, the Jewish people in the Roman church said, what advantage is there in me being a Jew? Independent of what that background is, whether you grew up in the church, whether you're the first in your family to have been saved, God is faithful, independent of that background. And we never see David try and use his background to justify his actions. He could have said, you can't condemn me. I'm not just a Jew. I'm the king of the Jews. You can't tell me what I do is right or wrong. But he doesn't do that, right? He has a humble heart, and he just admits right away, yes, I have sinned against God. So God is the one that is faithful, regardless of what my background is. Second, 
God is faithful regardless of those around me. We were, you know, remember we were talking about the Gentile response when they were hearing Paul's arguments, and they kind of pointed back at some of the Jews that had been uh, hypocritical in, in their actions, and they said, well, what if some didn't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? And of course, God, uh, Paul responds, not at all. And, and again, if we look at David, David doesn't use this defense either. He could have pointed back to all different evil people in history and said, well, look what this guy did and look what that guy did. Sure, I messed up, but I'm not as bad as any of them. David doesn't choose to do that. Again, he has a humble heart, a repentant heart, and he just admits, yes, I have sinned against God. So that's the the first thing I want you to take away from this is that God is faithful regardless of our background, regardless of those around me. Now, the next point is this. Uh, God gives us a choice. So we choose our own response to God's faithfulness. We believe that it's true, but now what are you going to do about it? You've got one choice of rebellion, uh, which is like they said in Romans chapter 3, let's do evil so that good can result. Or you've got the example of David, you have repentance, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now, let me be clear this morning. I'm not saying your choices are to sin or to not sin. We know that everyone is perfect. Our human flesh uh, is not perfect. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to sin from time to time. What we're talking about when we talk about rebellion and repentance is the posture of our heart. Rebellion is not just making a mistake. Rebellion is willingly resisting authority and um, and just discarding any kind of judgment, refusing to follow guidelines. And repentance is also a posture of the heart. It doesn't mean never sinning or making a mistake once, repenting and being perfect, but it's that heart model of being so sorrowful, realizing what you've done, that you are then motivated to change because of it. So again, we are not asking anyone to be perfect. Our response is not to choose be perfect or not. It's what is the position of our heart going to be to God's faithfulness? Are we going to choose to continue to rebel or are we going to choose to repent? And the reason why this decision is so important is because of my last point, which is this. My decisions determine my outcome. So if we choose that first option of rebellion, the outcome is condemnation. You know, that was Paul's bottom line in, in Romans 3, 8, right? The very last thing he says, their condemnation is just. So that is the result of rebellion. But on the bright side, if we choose repentance, the result is restoration. David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So that was his request to God. And we see that God's response was he fulfills that. He restores the relationship between himself and David. And not only that individual relationship, but he continues to build that legacy that we talked about all the way through the generations. And so that's the type of restoration that we have available to us when we choose repentance. So I want you to to hear my heart on this this morning. I'm not trying to scare anyone into repenting and scare someone away from rebellion because it's condemnation. There's a difference between just 
not dying, and really living. So our choice is not just condemnation or not. Our choice is condemnation or restoration. In the book of John, uh, Jesus says in, in 10, chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. So that is what we are offering this morning by choosing to repent, by choosing to have a humble heart like David. You have the ability not just to avoid condemnation and to avoid the penalties of the sins that you've committed along the way, but you have the ability to restore the relationship that your Heavenly Father wants to have with you. Uh, at this time, the worship team is going to come up uh, and get ready to play, uh, to play a song in, in closing. But what I want to do is just kind of talk to you a minute uh, about what we've, what we've talked through here and the points. And just to give you a little bit of, of background about myself, um, I do come from one of those families that would be similar to the Jewish family in the Roman church where I come from a long line of church-going families that have raised their children up and raised their children up to follow Jesus. So I, I have that advantage. Um, but that in itself was not enough to make me right with Christ. I still had to make my own decision to accept him and to admit that I have sinned and that I'm giving my life over to him. And I don't know where each one of you are this morning. Maybe some of you are in a similar situation. You've been raised in the church uh, and, and you've seen God's faithfulness time and time again and you've kind of built on that foundation. Or maybe not. Maybe this is all brand new to you and you're the first one in your family uh, that's been saved or that has come to Jesus. No matter which category you're in, we're all on level ground this morning and we all had this opportunity to come to God like David did and to say, I've sinned, but I'm looking to restore that relationship. So in just a minute, the worship team is going to be playing a song uh, that kind of is part of my faith heritage. Uh, I'm sure family members of mine have sung this for generations before me. Uh, But the song is called, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. Uh, And the the beginning of the chorus says, Jesus, Jesus, how I love thee, how I've proved thee over and over. And that's kind of the story that I have. I could give you story after story in my own life, my parents' life, my grandparents' life, of the times that God has been faithful to us and proved that over and over again. But whether you have that experience or not, the second section of that chorus is, uh, is so powerful as well. It says, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. So regardless of where we are, We're not perfect. We haven't arrived, but we can accept God's grace to trust him more and more each day as we walk this out. So if you could stand with us this morning, the worship team is going to play this uh, song. Uh, As you do, you can sing along. If you're familiar with it, you can follow along with the words or just use this as an opportunity to reflect. Where are you? Are you at a point where you're just resting on your past and assuming because of the good upbringing you have, you're going to be eternally fine or maybe blaming your past and saying, I'll never be right because look how I grew up. Set that aside this morning. Are you pointing out others and looking for the flaws in other people so you don't feel as bad about yourself? I'd encourage you to set that aside this morning as well. And I would just encourage you to to take the time to trust God. It's not easy. Trust never is. But like this song says, it's so sweet to trust in Jesus.